Have you ever thought that you were honoring God, but then realized you weren't? Let me give you an example from my own life. When I was in high school, our family switched churches. And I had been going to youth group through my junior high years at one church. My family decided to start going to a different church for reasons we're not going to get into. But I hated youth group. I genuinely, with the depths of my soul, did not want to go week after week after leaving my other youth members at the other church. I didn't know anybody at this one. Um, The few people who I was familiar with were people that I questioned their faith and their authenticity of it. Um, But week after week, out of half forced by my parents and half obligation from my heart, I went. And I thought I was doing the honorable duty of attending church. Right? I thought somehow I was honoring God by doing it out of obligation. Now, maybe in some slight sense, there was, at least I was still going, right? So maybe there was a slight bit of still God pleased with that part of it, but not with the heart behind it. But as I matured in my youth group years, going into my sophomore and junior year, I actually began to care about my relationship with God and care about the people around me enough to try to help them with their relationship with God. Rather than sitting there in judgment, deciding whether this person was a Christian or this one wasn't, I actually began building relationships with those other youth group members. Now, there were still issues within that youth group. By the time I left the church, I, I went to college, I came back, and I was an intern at that church. I helped lead the youth group at that church. By the time I left, there were still issues there. There were still issues on what was being taught. There was issues in the lives of those who were some of the leaders. And there were still plenty of students who weren't there for the right reasons. But I'm talking about my own issue of I thought obligation was honor. I thought I was honoring God out of obligation. But I found out true honor for the Lord began really when my heart began to open up to him and to the people that were around me. Now the Jewish people dealt with a similar type of blindness when it came to honoring the Father. Actually, all of us deal with some sense of blindness to this, don't we? We've seen blindness all throughout the Gospel of John. Not necessarily physical blindness, but people who just continue to not be able to get it. They just don't understand what's happening. And the Jewish people specifically believed that their man-made laws honored God. That their own way of building upon God's law and creating their own set of laws to even be more strict than what God's law was, that that was truly honoring to God. But it was purely external. It was out of obligation. There was no heart behind it. It was just follow the rules and you're good. That's why last week when we saw the man healed, right, who had been 38 years paralyzed, the Jewish people missed the healing. Instead, they're worried about why are you walking and carrying your bed. But this week, 
Jesus begins to respond to their problem. He begins to uncover reality for them. He begins to reveal to them that though they think they're honoring the Father, he says, I'm going to reveal to you the relationship between the Son and the Father. That's why the title of our message is Honoring the Son and the Father, because Jesus starts to advance on describing this relationship to us. That how they respond to the Son is actually also how they're responding to the Father because of the way the relationship works. We're going to see three things in two different ways. So first, we're going to see three truths about the Father-Son relationship. And then we're going to see three heart responses we're to have in understanding those truths. So let's get to the passage. We're in John chapter 5. We're actually going to hold on to a couple verses from last week and use those to kind of set our context up. So John chapter 5, verse 17, right after Jesus has healed the man and the Jews are questioning him. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So first we're going to see three truths about the father and the son relationship. But before we get to the first truth here, we have to understand the difference between us and the Jewish people. I want you to imagine that as you try to understand who God is, you only have the Old Testament. Because that's where the Jewish people were at. You see, we approach the Bible, and because we have the New Testament, and we're so familiar with so much in the New Testament, we come with the assumption of the Trinity. Right? We come already knowing Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons, one God. We don't necessarily get how it all works, but there's supposed to be mystery to it. But nonetheless, we still come with this basic belief, right, of we know Father, Son, and Spirit exist. But the Jews didn't have that, right? If you read just the Old Testament, it's filled with God the Father working and speaking, and you see the Spirit coming and going, but the Son is veiled from 
the Jewish people. It's not that the sun isn't there. It's not that the sun's not working. But he looks differently than Jesus in the flesh. You don't see that in the Old Testament. His role looked differently. So the Jewish people are approaching God the Father differently than we approach God the Father. At least their mentality about it. Because though they did have prophecy, right... The prophecy is spoken in such figurative language that only those who actually had faith could begin to understand what the prophecy was really pointing towards. Right? That's why we come to the New Testament and the Jewish people have missed so many prophecies because they're not really living by faith but by their own man-made laws. So we have to understand the Jewish people are going to hate it, hate it, when Jesus, someone in the flesh, is making claims to be equal with the Father. Right? We need to grasp this, not because we need to remove responsibility from the Jewish people. They're still responsible for not living by faith, for missing everything God had told them in prophecy. But we need to put ourselves in their shoes in some sense to begin to understand why Jesus put such an emphasis on the son-father relationship. Because to them, it wasn't just an assumption that they had as they came to the text, as they came to Jesus, right? It's something we come with an assumption about because we already know the whole Bible teaches this. So, the first truth we find out about the son and the father is the son does what the father does. Verse 17 But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. So Jesus' claim here is the miracle he just did, right, of healing this man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, he did it because the father showed him to do it. The father was working in that situation, so Jesus is working in that situation. And we see there's two implications here. The first one is a massive surprise to the Jewish people. What what day is it that the man was healed? Sabbath. What did Jesus just say about the Father on that day? He's working. So Jesus is saying, my Father is working on the Sabbath, so I also am working on the Sabbath. This would have blown their minds. This this would have made no sense whatsoever to them. What do you mean the Father's working? He created it. He's the one who rested on the seventh day. He's the one who's told us to rest on the seventh day. How is he working? But in a sense, what Jesus is saying here by saying my Father is working, he's, he's saying you've missed what the Sabbath is really about. Elsewhere in Scripture, in a Gospel, we see Jesus say, Man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. You see, man wasn't created to fulfill these laws. The laws were created to help men. But then the second implication is an even more drastic one, right? And we see that they actually understand this second implication as well. It's actually the more angering for the Jewish people By Jesus saying, my father's working, I'm working, Jesus is making himself equal to God. That's why we see their response in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. 
Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. It sounds like blasphemy to them. And we understand why, right? It makes logical sense why they would respond this way. We're not excusing their response, but it makes logical sense why they would respond this way. It sounds like blasphemy. Let's kill this guy. He's claiming to be the one and only God, or at least equal with the one and only God. So Jesus goes on to answer them. As they seek to kill him, Jesus answers them, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So Jesus says the Son himself does not decide to do anything on his own, but he's constantly working in relationship with the Father. We see this in our earthly parent-child relationships, don't we? That children imitate their parents. Have you ever had that one backfire on you? As someone who grew up playing baseball, my tendency is when I grab a ball or a soft toy in the house is to just toss it to myself as I walk around the house. This is lead to my children thinking it's a good idea to grab toys and toss them in the air and end up on each other's heads, and they don't recognize the difference between a little soft car and a hard block, right? They think everything's free game, we're just going to toss it. That type of relationship is maximized in Jesus, in his relationship with the Father. Because Jesus is not simply imitating the Father. Jesus himself is God. So he's only going to do what God is doing, what the Father is doing. And Jesus limits himself even. Right? Jesus is saying, I only do what the Father is doing. I'm not doing anything out on my own. Essentially, the claim here is that paralyzed man was healed because the Father was the one doing it. And Jesus goes on to expand on his intimacy with the Father as this work was done. Verse 20, the first part of it. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. The Father shows the Son everything that he's doing. The Son has insight into all that the Father is trying to do. The Father has no hidden agenda from the Son, but he shows it all to him. This is why Jesus, even before he gets to the day of the cross, he knows what's coming. That's why over and over in the Gospel of John, we hear him say, my hour is not yet here. He already knows what's coming because the Father is already showing it all to him. Why? Because the Father loves the Son. So he shares his works with the Son. He shows his Son everything that he's doing. This is just a quick side note. This is a really great reminder for us to include those we love in what we're doing. We tend to have a tendency in our Western culture to 
compartmentalize things, right? That, well, this is my job. I don't share that with my wife or my kids, or this is a different thing I have going on. I'm not going to include these people on that. But all that the Father does, He shares with the Son because He loves the Son. We are to include people in what we're doing. Now, don't take that the wrong way and say that you need to share every detail of everything that happens with everybody in your life, but... You don't need to isolate everything either. But going back to the text, Jesus, the work that Jesus is doing is equal to the Father's work. The claim Jesus is making is right, but the problem is the Jewish people see it as fraudulent. But Jesus says, the claim I just made about the work that the Father is doing with healing this man? That's just the beginning of it. Look at the second part of verse 20. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Jesus is telling them what the Father has been doing even greater things he's going to show the Son, and the Son is going to do even greater things so that you might be marveled, you might be amazed by it. What are those greater things? That leads us to the second part of the relationship between the Father and Son. The Father gives life and gives judgment to the Son. Not only does the Father show the Son what He's doing, but the Son has now been placed in a position of having the highest authority, that He has power, authority, over life and death. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Imagine being the Jewish people. For someone to claim to have authority to give life to the dead was something only God had claims on in the Old Testament. Life belongs to God. So this claim is disturbing to them. Because Jesus says, just like the Father gives life, so also the Son can give life to whomever He wills. And we see this happen later in John, don't we? Jesus raises Lazarus. Or even eventually, when Jesus' hour does come, Jesus ends up giving his own life so that those who might trust in him might have new life. And then Jesus in himself has power over death as he is resurrected. And if you skip down to next week, just next week's passage, just real quick. Verse 26, it talks about this life again. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Now we have a little more detail. The Father actually gives the Son the authority to have life. It's not that the Son just randomly woke up with it one day. It's that the Father has handed this authority over to the Son. So now the Father can give life, the Son can give life. It's been given to Him. And they're telling us here, Jesus is telling us here, 
the ability to give life, the authority to give life, the power to give life is much greater than what I just did for that 38-year-long paralyzed man. But he's going to go even further. Verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So now not only the Son has the power to give life, now the Son has all judgment because the Father isn't judging anyone. It's all on the shoulders of the Son. This is another work that was only God's in the Old Testament. Only God judged people, judged nations, and now the Son is the one who has all judgment. Imagine being the Jewish people here. They were just seeking to kill Jesus, and now Jesus says, the Son is the one who has all ability to judge you. It's like when you're at a party and you're sharing a story about how you were speeding on the highway and you realize you're talking to a state trooper. Right? And you're like, oh, man. I hope he doesn't check my license plate number as he leaves tonight, right? Except on a more maximum scale. Now Jesus is saying, the one you were just trying to kill is the, the only one, the one the Father has given all judgment to. So the Jewish people are left with a decision. Do we believe this Jesus, who claims to be the Son, who claims to have life and judgment in his hands, or do we declare that he is blaspheming and kill him? We know what they decide later, don't we? Many Jewish people end up missing the Son. And by missing the Son, they end up missing the Father which is our last point for the three truths about the Father-Son. The response to the Son is response to the Father. As they are faced with this decision of what to believe about Jesus, Jesus gives them a final recap of what their decision entails. Verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The Father has given the Son life and judgment that all people might honor the Son. And God, this is God's purpose in the Son doing these works, doing the works of the Father, specifically the great works of life and judgment. He does this so that the Son might receive worship. Because the Son is God. He's not saying, okay, give some of your worship to the Son, give some of your worship to the Father, and you'll be good. Jesus is saying, all the honor you give to the Son is the same honor you're giving to the Father because they're one together. This is a warning for the Jewish people. If they make the decision to not honor Jesus, to not honor the Son, they're not honoring the Father either. And then Jesus goes on to expand on what this means to honor the Son. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus puts this connection on whoever hears Jesus' words and believes the Father who sent him. 
Now, we have to understand when Jesus says, hear my word, he's talking more than just audibly hearing it. He's talking about the ability to understand what he's saying and obey what he's saying, right? We've had this probably happen before. Let's use men for an example. Husbands, fathers, have you ever heard the phrase, honey, the trash can's full. Honey, did you hear me? The trash can's full. Right? When she says, did you hear me, there's an implication of, did you not just audibly hear what I said? You didn't stir you to action. Right? When we say to somebody, did you hear me, it's not just, sometimes it may be just an audible question, but often it's saying, you're not acting as if you did hear me. And that's what Jesus is saying here. When Jesus says, whoever hears my word, he's not saying whoever just audibly hears it. He's saying whoever understands what I'm saying and follows it shows themselves to believe, have faith in the Father. They're inseparable responses. You hear Jesus, you obey Jesus, you believe the Father. Those three cannot be separated from each other. And the end result for those who respond to Jesus is eternal life. They don't come into judgment, but they are transferred from death to life. Eternal life is this theme we see throughout the Gospel of John. But Jesus has pretty much laid it bare on the table here. Jesus has said the popular verse that we're going to see later, right? John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus has basically said that in different words here. The only way for you to honor him is to honor me. Right? He's saying the same thing. It's just different words. We'll get into the next part of Jesus' discourse next week. But for this morning, we need to just grasp what Jesus is telling us about the Father and the Son relationship. The Father is working, and he, but he's also showing his work to the Son so that the Son will work as well. In fact, some work has been specifically designated to the Son, the works of life and judgment And all of it's done for a purpose, for people to respond to the Son, because their response to the Son is the response to the Father. Which brings us to our three responses. You've probably noticed some of them already, but three heart responses to the Son. And I call them heart responses because we can often in our own lives, specifically Christians in Western culture, we can fall into the same trap that the Jewish people fell into, thinking it's out of purely external. You've probably noticed this, the theme of the heart, the theme of the internal workings in all of my preaching by now. That's my biblical counseling training coming out in me. But it's not just because I've been trained this way. It's because I actually believe this is one of the most dangerously neglected areas of the Christian life. That we as Christians, just as human beings in general in the Western culture, tend to operate purely on the external. We pay little attention to our beliefs, 
our desires, our affections, the values, all within us that drive the way we act. It's not that we would say those things don't exist, but we operate in our lives with a lack of awareness of what's going on inside of us. Probably because our Western culture has taught us you can't control what's inside of you. Our Western culture has said, whatever you feel is who you are. That's your identity. You don't have control over it, so you just need to fulfill it. That's what our culture is trying to tell us. But the Bible tells us a different story. God has called us to be, first of all, to be aware of what's going on inside of us. But not only that, but to say, you can have responsibility, control over it by the power of the Spirit in you. We actually are stewards of our emotions. We can have eventual control over our emotions. I'm not saying that if somebody doesn't hurt you right now, you're not going to feel angry. But what I'm saying, though, is you can eventually get to the point where you are less angered than you are now. You can... Put yourself in positions where certain things don't anger you like they used to. Maybe they don't even anger you at all. We are responsible for what goes on inside of us. And I think we neglect it as Christians too often. Our inward reality is supposed to actually match our verbal beliefs we say. What we say we believe about Jesus should affect something inside of us. So, our three heart responses, as I said, you probably noticed them, but first of all, verse 20, marvel at Jesus. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. Jesus tells us here that people should marvel at these greater works, at the fact that Jesus can give life and judgment. But in reality, we know the Jewish people have already missed the marvel, right? Because they missed the miracle last week that Jesus gave this man a new life. So ask yourself the question, do I marvel at Jesus? Are you amazed by Jesus anymore? Are you in awe of who Jesus is, what he does, what he is doing You see why this is an internal reality. You can say all you want how grateful you are for Jesus' death, but we all know people who say that but aren't actually grateful for Jesus' death. If you've lost your marvel for Jesus, which we all have at some point in life in some sense, there's a couple reasons why it may have happened. Number one, you may have grown calloused to Jesus. This is often a temptation for people who have been Christians for a longer period of time. You've heard the passages so often that it just becomes dull to you. It often happens when you see Jesus as an obligation rather than a relationship, right? I don't mean to sound cliche with that. But in all honesty, I approach my family as an example in that I am continuing to learn more about who my family is each and every day. 
I continue to learn more about how my wife works, about how the, what goes on internally in her, what goes on in my kids' hearts, all of this. So if I can do that with my family, who I've known for X amount of years, right? Why can't we do that with Jesus, who has all the more for us to know? So it may be that you've grown callous, but you've grown callous because you've begun to approach Jesus in the wrong way. Or second, you may not be marveled by Jesus because you might be marveled by something else. I'm convinced that in our Western culture again, or just in our Christian culture in general, we're too easily marveled by things that are earthly. We watch a well-made movie. We watch a great athletic performance. We see an amazing science discovery, and we're amazed by all of these things. How much more should we be amazed by the one who made those things? By the one who gives life? So that's the first heart response, a heart that is amazed by Jesus. Which leads to the second response, to honor Jesus. Verse 22 and 23. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You marvel at Jesus, you honor Jesus. To honor Jesus means that you are placing Jesus now as of utmost importance in life. So you have marvel where you're amazed by who Jesus is. And because you're so amazed by who Jesus is, you now reorient the things in your life accordingly. So that Jesus is set as the top priority. I used the word worship earlier, right? Worship. We worship what we consider to be of greatest significance in life. It goes a step beyond marveling. But now, because you're marveled, because you believe Jesus is the greatest one to reorient your life around, you now do reorient your life around him. So, ask yourself, am I worshiping Jesus, honoring Jesus, in every aspect of my life? Take a lesson from the Jewish people in the Old Testament, where they would offer sacrifices to God, the Father, and then they'd go offer them to idols. And they were judged accordingly. May we not offer God our worship on Sunday morning and then go to the idols six days a week. We should be worshiping Jesus in every aspect. Our kids should see us change the channel when something inappropriate comes on the television. Our kids should know about our devotional life and what God is teaching us. Our kids should know that we're concerned about their own walk with Jesus. Or, let's go in a different realm, your co-workers or your friends should know not to ask you to do anything unethical. They should instead experience so much grace and love from you that they're astounded by it. They should see that when it's a really bad day and everybody else wants to complain... You're the one that still has joy. Because those who have hearts that are marveled by Jesus then reorganize their commitments in life. Which leads us to the last point. The last heart response is a heart that submits to Jesus. Verse 24. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus describes what it means to honor him, which is honoring the Father as well. Those who hear Jesus' words, and we've already talked about this, to hear Jesus' words is to understand Jesus' words and obey Jesus' words, meaning we're willing to submit ourselves to Jesus' words. The internal realities, the fact that we're marveling on the inside at Jesus, the fact that we are worshiping Jesus in our hearts, then plays out in our day-to-day life situations. So ask yourself the question, who am I most loyal to? Jesus or myself? Ultimately, that's the question it comes down to. What you want Versus what Jesus wants. And a heart that has been reoriented towards Jesus seeks to obey Jesus' words. So there's some things that Jesus tells us that we are to do, we are to submit to. Let's just get a couple examples real quick. Loyalty to Jesus means you care about the salvation of other people. So much to the point that you're willing to tell them about Jesus. Loyalty to Jesus means you hate and are willing to give up, sacrifice anything that prevents you from being faithful to Jesus. Right? He says it's better for a man to lose an eye and still go to heaven than to go to hell with both eyes. You're willing to sacrifice whatever it takes that you might be fully faithful to Jesus. And last, loyalty to Jesus means you're willing even to give your own life as you pick up your cross to follow Jesus. This morning, I put before you that how you respond to Jesus is how you're responding to God. And what you're called to do, what we're called to do, is we're called to marvel at Jesus. Be amazed by him I chose that song this morning that we heard because of that phrase, filled with wonder, awestruck wonder, at simply the mention of his name. Is that true of your heart? We're called to marvel, we're called to honor Jesus, worship him, and we're called to submit ourselves to all that he says. If this is new to you this morning, maybe somebody listening online, I invite you that if you've never heard this whole story before, begin by marveling at Jesus and what he did at the cross. And as a response of Jesus giving his own life at the cross and resurrecting that we may have new life, I invite you to give your worship to him. Submit yourself to him. And for those of us this morning here who already follow Jesus, may we have our marvel renewed. May we have our worship reoriented. And it may it result in us pledging full loyalty to Jesus. Because as you submit yourself to Jesus, you are honoring God the Father himself. Let's pray.